This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Before we start, I need to say thank you to Graham for supporting my crazy dream and being my sounding board. I also need to thank Ilona, my fiercest supporter in everything that I do, especially this little project of mine. I love you guys so much. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Palsy. You are listening to KSB, Interview with Daniel Schricker, Part 2. This week, I continue my fascinating conversation with Daniel. We learn a little more about him and his writings. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome back, Daniel. Thank you so much for giving me some more of your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me back again. This week, my first question I wanted to ask you is music. When did that happen? How did that happen? What was the, your, your, how did you get into music and then eventually go and study it and, and all of those things? Um. I think music has always been stuck in my DNA somewhere. So my, my mother tells me that even from like the age of 18 months or something like that, I was always rather transfixed by uh, music and just seeing an orchestra and things like that. Um, and I had a couple of friends who played trumpet. And so that's kind of what I then wanted to do. I wanted to learn the trumpet and I kept asking my, my mother and, um, I, I had some issues with my lungs when I was born, so she was hesitant to kind of put me into, you know, trumpet lessons too young because she was kind of worried about some of the health ramifications of that. And uh, I kept sort of uh, harassing her about it, and eventually she got me checked out by the doctor and I started uh, trumpet lessons uh, just before my seventh birthday, I think. Yeah, it was around the age of six. And so I, I did that and continued that when I moved to Australia, uh, kept going with lessons. And everyone actually, including myself, for, for, for the longest time, assumed that I would pursue trumpet professionally. But in high school, I became interested in music composition. And I had a, I had a teacher, a music teacher in, in my high school who was a composer as well. And he kind of fostered my interest to, to some extent so he and I co-wrote the the musical for the, the kids at the school um, when I was in my senior year that's amazing and and so by the time I got to university I kind of had a decision to make of do I pursue trumpet professionally or do I go more with composition now you know and I auditioned for both but I decided to to do composition just because by that point I was more interested in that 
And so I did undergraduate studies in, in music composition for four years and then went on to do my PhD. Oh, that's so in, amazing. In the same field. Wow. That, that, that's very cool. I've never met a composer <laughs> before. <laughs> did you find it harder to pursue your love of music kind of at the mission just because I know that like specifically in in South Africa there's besides Radio Crazy there's like no music no dancing no none of that stuff so was it was it a bit harder to do that or was it easier to do it in in Australia were you still able to listen to the radio listen to music listen to orchestras all of those kind of things yeah actually um the the situation in, in Australia was such that they, to, to an extent, encouraged it. So in, in lieu of kind of a, a youth group or things like that, we had um, a relatively large orchestra, which was made up of, of mostly the, the young adults and the teenagers within the church. And they also had a choir. Um, so from a purely musical perspective, that, that was fine because it actually allowed me some opportunities to, you know, arrange things here and there. What, what was problematic about the, the system, I think, was just some of the, the psychological trappings that went along with it. So kind of, you may have heard Erica talk about the, the fact that the, the choirs at Kwasida Banda, they didn't just represent a, a bunch of people getting together to sing. It, it was tied up very much with kind of a, a sense of where you're at spiritually. And, and the yeah. same was true in Australia. So um, I remember sort of the, the, the leader of the music who is now, leads or is involved with the music at KSB South Africa because he moved there with his family. Um, he, he kind of sat us down at around the age of 14 and, and said, you know, you're kind of eligible to join the, the choir now, but this is a very serious thing and you need to, you know, make sure that your life is right with God kind of thing. Um, but it was taken further than that. So it wasn't uncommon, for example, that when the choir got up to sing at the end of a church service that you would see like, uh, a couple of people staying seated and typically what that meant is that at some point during the sermon there was some sin that had probably come to their mind which they wanted to confess to the pastor because there was kind of this pressure that if you're getting up to sing and your life isn't pure before God um, that's not okay and so there, there was a fair amount of psychological pressure that was being exerted in that sense I partly for that reason I actually chose never to join the choir and I, I sort of got in a little bit of trouble for it in the sense that people kind of questioned me on it but I was very involved in the orchestra yeah that that was that was really the only activity where the men and the women were kind of doing it together but but not they weren't allowed to speak to each other really or anything like that it was still separate but together if that makes mm. sense so they'd be allowed to sing together or play in an orchestra together but in terms of just like mingling and having normal conversations with with girls or something like that that wouldn't wouldn't have been okay and in fact we we got in trouble one time just because um after a church service um there was a bunch of people that just kind of ended up sitting around chatting and um it was married people as well and things like that but um apparently this got back to the leadership of the, the church because um you know they they sort of came down very hard on us for it and uh <laughs> one, one of the more amusing i mean it's it's really not funny but it, it strikes me as amusing now is that at one stage the the person who led the the kind of unofficially led the young people in the music just got up and told us that apparently the previous week they had sent some of the 
I guess, the more attractive young single women home and then st stuck around to study the reaction of the, the young men in terms of, you know, whether they were deemed to be leaving earlier than usual. And I, I didn't even know, you know, none of us knew anything was happening, but apparently in their scrutiny of, of the young men, they decided that they'd left just a little bit earlier than they should have that particular week. And of course, this, this can only mean that they're sticking around because they want to hang around the, the girls. I don't really know why, because you wouldn't have been allowed to interact with them. But, um, but I mean, that was the, the kind of, you know, again, silly level of control that they were trying to place the young people under there. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can sort of laugh about it now, but, you know, at that age where you're, you're trying to learn to interact with, with people your own age and just kind of find your, your way in the world in general, um, you know, it's just psychologically abusive to make people feel guilty over perfectly normal, um, you know, desires to socialize. That's scary. I wanted to ask, so everyone obviously gets asked to partake in the choir, but what if you, so I have the, the beautiful singing voice of rocks being grated. Um, would I still <laughs> be eligible to, or have to be in a choir to get up in the ranks in KSB or, or if you have my beautiful singing voice, <laughs> would you be like, yeah, thanks for trying, but you can sit over there and, and keep quiet. <laughs> that's, that's a good question. I'm just, Thinking back on it, I'm not, I can't actually just off the top of my head think of somebody that was like completely tone deaf or something where that would have been necessary. I mean, of course, some people were more musical than, than others, but um, yeah, I'm actually not sure. I mean, I, I was pretty much the only person from my generation that wasn't participating in the choir. And um, it, it obviously wasn't for lack of musical ability. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I can say that humbly, but um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm actually not sure. It really, it was sort of, the thing is it was presented as a kind of rite of passage. So if you wanted to be recognized, not only as an adult, but particularly as a Christian spiritual adult, you really had to be part of the choir to sort of signal that to the church in a sense. So even the people that say, you know, because not every teenage boy necessarily wants to sing. I mean, that's probably not the first activity they're going to be drawn to. But because it was packaged with the kind of belief system of the church and what it represented, I think that motivated people to want to participate more than, than the musical activity itself. Okay. And were there, was there more than one choir? So I know in South Africa, you had like the youth choir and then this choir and then that choir and then choir number four, three, two, one. And if you're in choir one, you're basically in heaven. Um, is there anything like that in, in Australia? Uh, only in the sense that we had the children's choir and the, the kind of adults choir, but it also included teenagers. So they, they did have a children's choir. And um, I, I actually participated in the children's choir when I was a lot younger, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, again, there was just an unnecessary kind of seriousness that pervaded the, the, the treatment of the children there. So, you know, they weren't brutalized or abused in the same way that they were in South Africa, but there was just always a constant emphasis on, on you know, just things being a certain way. And it, it was very difficult just to relax as a child and kind of enjoy it and have a good time with all of your friends, you know. Yeah. And then those people that you mentioned that if they felt like they had the sin or, or whatever was on their heart at that time and they 
they sat down and stayed down instead of going to participate with the choir at that time? Were they, what happened to them? Were they scrutinized? Would they look down upon? Did they have to run and confess? Like, like what would happen to those guys that kind of sat down instead of singing because they felt that? Yeah, uh, they wouldn't really face much pressure from like the other people around them just because everyone understood what was going on. And in fact, if anything, it was probably seen as oh, you're taking your relationship with God really seriously kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, it, it, like, if yeah, I think it probably would have been viewed as, as sort of almost a mark of distinction in a sense that, um, you know, oh, there's, there's somebody that's obviously really in touch with God kind of thing. But, no, it wasn't, it wasn't so much pressure from the, the other people. It was just, like, the, the way, the, the kind of psychological control that they exercised over people was such that, um, people people kind of would do that to themselves as, as well. Um, and so then what would typically happen is, is and I, I remember this at least on, on a few occasions where, you know, the person sitting, you would immediately see them kind of walk into the back office in the church with the pastor. And, you know, you can't, everyone kind of knew what was happening. They obviously felt that they needed to confess some sin or something like that. Um, so, but I mean, I wasn't there, so I'm not hundred percent sure, but that was just based on knowing the belief system as, as I did, you know, that's my guess as to what was happening. Yeah. And then on confession, obviously you've now mentioned that, that confession needs to, to, uh, they had, they would confess their sins, but was it almost like a, a Catholic confessional? So every Sunday after church, you go, you go and speak to your counselor and go confess your sins or um, was it more of a, yeah, I'm okay. I don't need to confess my sins. I'm cool with God. Or like, was it forced upon you guys or was it something that you just did naturally? Well, this, this sort of raises a really interesting question about the way these kind of high control groups operate, because one, once you get people to a certain level of control, and, and or, or more importantly, once you've gotten them to buy into the belief system, mm. you don't actually have to mandate things anymore. And this this is something that frustrates me about KSB's defense to some of the allegations where they 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 will sort of look you in, in the eye and say, well, that was never a rule at Kwasi Zabantu. So, for, for example, um, I'm not aware of a single instance of interracial marriage at Kwasi Zabantu. And yet, if you talk to the leadership there, they would probably tell you, oh, that's that's not a rule we have. Um, so they they enforce things through, you know, groupthink, um, the, the, the natural kind of human desire to conform. But in the case of confession, um, it was set out in such a way that people understood that really to get into heaven, you needed to be always confessing your sins. I mean, that was the bedrock of Kwasi Zabantu's theology and still is. Mm-hmm. This, this idea that your confession, your active confession is what kind of provides forgiveness, but not, not confession in the conventional sense of confessing to God. It has to be in the presence of one of the leaders from South Africa or the pastor of the Australian church. Um, so it was worse than just like going after Sunday. I mean, people would do that too after a sermon but people would go to the pastor during the week as well because there was constantly this fear of you know if I die with unconfessed sin in my life that the implication was basically that you'll end up in hell and so 
the, the the kind of psychological pressure that that puts on people, um, especially because they're made to feel that normal parts of their humanity are inherently sinful in some mm. sense too. You you have this constant tension of you know, needing to confess things, but then because you're human and, you know, just living life, um, you're, you're never really able to get rid of sin in any meaningful sense. Um, now, it would depend on the person that you talk to as to how seriously they took it. Like some people probably wouldn't have been confessing their sins as regularly as others. Um, but certainly a lot of the young people would have felt that that was like the one true mark of, of Christianity. And, um, I mean, I remember when the pastor shared his his testimony of sorts, you know, in, in a sermon once, and it consisted of him going to one of the leaders of Kosti Zabantu in South Africa and confessing all of his sins. So there, there was this kind of just this understanding that that's what Christianity is. And the, the more you confess, in a sense, the more spiritual you are, you know. Sure. It's, sorry, it's so strange that you mentioned that interracial marriages because in my interview with Erica, she mentioned like the exact same thing. So yeah, yeah I, I just I just point I just point that out as something yeah. that um, you know there, there were so many things where it's not like they've written it down somewhere or something that mm. you can point to their yeah. code and go oh this is this is forbidden at KSB. It's just they preached even if they just hinted at it in sermons, you know, Aloe's word is so sacred that no one would dare question his opinion on something, mm. whether it's, you know, a, more of a fringe kind of issue or something more central. Um, and so it's it's not like I had um, everyone telling me, like, every Sunday you're not allowed to date. I just understood that there's that's not an option, you know, yes. because nobody else is doing it. And, and it was condemned in, in the preaching at times too, of course, but... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, once once you get the ball rolling in terms of the belief system, there's there's very little you have to do to coerce people to maintain that, especially when there's this clear understanding that you're going to come under immense pressure within the group if you fail to uphold some of these rules. You know? Yeah. So self-policing is also a big thing in cults. And obviously they instill that in yourself, because if I don't, if I don't step out of line, I won't come under scrutiny and I'll be fine. Kind of right. Thing. Well, and, and and more importantly, they it's not it's not only the scrutiny of the church, but they they convince people that you're under God's scrutiny and God's going to see you if you depart from the Quasis Abantu way of doing things. And, and as I pointed out in my first essay, um, the God that they present to you is is not a, a particularly compassionate figure. Mm. So the the kind of the overriding fear for me growing up. Um, wasn't so much that the church would find out that I'd done something wrong because, I mean, essentially, for the most part, I was keeping the rules. Um, it was the fact that I was constantly convinced that God was going to punish me for, for failing to, to live a pure, pure enough life or a sinless enough life kind mm. of thing. And um, so, you know, the imagination of a child or an ad adolescent being what it is, you imagine all kinds of uh, things just in, in your own mind of what, what that might look like and and then there's even times where you know something bad happens in life and you immediately assume that oh this must be god's judgment to something i've done and then you start scrutinizing the life as well it's mm. like oh you know maybe it's because of this or i had a crush on a girl or you know god must be kind of smiting me for that so um a, a lot of the control that happens 
doesn't actually need to be actively enforced by the leadership as long as they get people to believe in, in this kind of malevolent deity that can see them all the time. I mean, what better way of control is there than that? You don't even have to be around to police people if they're convinced that, you know, God's going to do it for them. Yeah, because he sees everything. Right. How did how did this impact your 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 view on faith? Like where where are you now with that? I know Erica um, is pretty much no faith, but I'm going to be a good human being. Um, where mm-hmm. where are you at in in your life with that? If I may ask. Um. Yeah. No, that's fine. I I still have a, a belief in God, so I I have attended other churches since leaving Classes Avantu. Um, something that's particularly interesting to me is, and something that I keep trying to emphasize to people is that, um, I think it's too simplistic to look at a group like Kwasi Zabantu and and say, well, religion is evil as a result, Mm -hmm. because what, despite what they're saying and claiming about being Bible believing Christians, that, that is demonstrably false. I mean, I, I don't have a a theology degree, but it, it is kind of a, just a hobby of mine. And if you examine their teachings in the light of church history, um, Protestant evangelical church history, they they depart from it so severely that I, I, I wouldn't even characterize them as a Christian organization at all. They've just invented their own brand of religion that they kind of cloak in, in the Bible and Christianity in order to, um, in, in a sense, deceive people. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, that's, in fact, I, I started writing a paper where I kind of dissect some of their main doctrines and just demonstrate that, firstly, it's not even, it's not even something they've arrived at from the study of the Bible, but, but equally importantly, I think, is it's a complete departure from what any orthodox um, evangelical understanding of Christianity entails. Mm. So just by way of example, and I rather cheekily sent this quote to uh, one of the few KSB leaders who is, um, or co-workers who is active on Twitter. Um, in fact, it's Erica's brother-in-law. And I, because I noticed that he posted uh, some quotes from Charles Spurgeon. Now, for, for those who don't know Charles Spurgeon, he's, he's sort of nicknamed the Prince of Preachers. He was an extremely well-known uh a preacher in London in, in the 1800s. And he's in some ways considered one of the most, you know, mainstream evangelical preachers that are often referred to. And um, in fact, KSB refers to him at times as well. Um, but the problem is that, I, and the quote that I sent to um, Marius Pretorius was Spurgeon explicitly condemning the confession of sin to, to human beings. Um, so he had a massive issue with that because he realized some of the problematic implications of it. And he regarded it as, as kind of a, a heretical departure from Christianity. Um, and this is why I get a little bit frustrated when KSB quotes people like Spurgeon, because there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that he would never have sanctioned or endorsed their, their brand of Christianity. The same could be said uh, of so many of their doctrines, their way of getting married um, with the exception of the most, you know, hardcore fundamentalist groups, there's no there's no mainstream evangelical organization mm. where they'll they'll kick you out of the church for writing a love note to a, a someone of the opposite sex or expel you from the school because you've you know you've developed a, a romantic relationship with somebody. So um, that's that's partly why I felt motivated to to speak about it as well. Is just that. This, this kind of idea that they represent, you know, a normal 
Christian um, ideology. Um, it's just not true. And, and anybody who even superficially examines their teachings and their practices in light of, of the evangelical church and the confessions um, and church history will find that, that that's certainly not the case, that they represent, um, you know, a, a normative Christian experience. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. The other thing I wanted to ask you, since you started speaking out and, and I saw your posts on Twitter and you post about your writings and you, and you often post about um, what is in a sermon versus what they say versus what like you would normal, normal Christians would think that kind of thing. But have you, have you experienced any heavy backlash from, from your guys in Australia since you've been speaking out? And then also since I'm sure when the news broke here, they knew about it over there when all of, when the big news broke, I mean, the stories have been coming out over a whole bunch of years but was there any backlash towards you personally or, or towards anyone that you know when you guys did eventually like go, no, they're not lying. This happened to me. Here's the information. Um, no, I mean, I haven't personally experienced any kind of backlash. I don't know that KSB South Africa would consider me enough of a threat just partly because I'm outside of the country and I'm not like, I'm not making allegations of criminal behavior just of my own accord. The only things I'm referring to is things that are pretty well documented by other people now. And the things that I'm discussing in terms of the, the psychological and spiritual abuse, um, I mean, that I am speaking from personal experience. So I, I have no issue if they take me to task on it because I, I know what happened. So in terms of Australia, the frustrating thing with with them here is that um, they they did officially sort of cut ties with Kwasi Zabantu a couple of years ago. And I suspect it wasn't, well, I know this for a fact now, it wasn't because they disagreed with the doctrine and the practices of Kwasi Zabantu. What happened is that Friedel Stegen was the main representative of, of KSB that would always come and visit and hold the conferences in Australia. And the leadership at KSB basically pushed him out of the mission at one stage in, I think it was 2019 or thereabouts. Yeah. Now, I, this is just me piecing things together. I think what is what is what seems to have occurred is that the people in Australia would have really questioned that because they their loyalty lay first and foremost to Friedel because they had the closest connection to him. So when KSB kind of kicked him out, that probably would have made them suspicious and and you know hey what's going on at ksb here why are they treating our our revered you know our esteemed uh leader this way so i think and in fact i i was speaking to a couple who are not part of the church um but they're related to the main the, the husband is related to the main family and um he was speaking to the the father of the pastor of the australian branch here and this this um he said that they haven't uh and I quote, spiritually separated from KSB. In other words, they, they don't regard what KSB has done, as far as I'm aware, as essentially wrong or problematic. They just don't like that there's been a takeover of the leadership once Friedel and Alu kind of got into their old age. That's, that's my perception of it. So as far as I know, there's been no deviation in terms of the, the rules in any meaningful sense, in terms of their theology or things like that. 
um, you know, I've not heard anything to suggest that that the pastors say gone to Bible college and actually educated himself on what the Bible says or anything like mm-hmm. that either. So that's that's my impression. Um, the frustrating thing about it is they would probably, and in fact, I did I did have a, a member message me uh, of of the church message me, and. Um, and because I, I was really just inquiring, I kind of messaged him out of the blue, even though I hadn't been in touch with him for many years. And, and I, it was right around the time where I heard sort of rumblings that there were issues between KSB and, and the church here. And I, I just asked him, so you know, is it true that the rumors that I've heard that you guys have separated from KSB? And his response was was kind of frustrating because he sort of, in, in the typical arrogance that these people possess, it was like... Um, yeah, we've separated, you know, anyone with half a brain can see that, that, you know, what's going on at KSB is a problem. And, um, and the reason it frustrated me is because, you know, as a 17 year old, I confronted the leaders of the Australian branch, and I pointed out to them the, the problems that existed with their, their blind allegiance to KSB. And I certainly wasn't taken seriously at that point. So for them now to kind of disassociate themselves when it no longer becomes convenient to lumped in with the the group is a little bit hypocritical really because they had people warn them for years about this group and they only chose to actually do something about it when it really became too awkward for them to do anything else you know yeah do you think um i I spoke to eric about this as well i know so at the ksb mission the the older people they kind of they don't really have anywhere else to go, right? They don't have the the means to go anywhere else. They're a hundred percent reliant on the mission. In do you think maybe the the elders in in your church or the church leaders or pastor there maybe at this point was like, well, I'm in it now. I've got all this power. I've got all this control over people. I'm not willingly going to give it up. And then when it got nasty, they're like. Well, we're not associating with them anymore, but we're keeping the beliefs because then I can still hold some semblance of power. Do you think it's something like that? I, I don't even know if there's that much malice on, on the part of, say, the pastor or something like that. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think he just genuinely believes that these people had this, this revival experience and that to depart from their way of doing things. So the pastor of the Australian group, he also, as far as I'm aware, didn't finish high school. He has no theological training whatsoever. So my impression, I mean, his, his sermons, not, not to be unkind, but his sermons were just disastrous in, in terms of both, both from a structural point of view and certainly from a theological point of view. Mm. Um, and so the, the man was really too ignorant, I think, to be uh, malicious in, in a kind of totalitarian way. He he was an extremely subservient follower. And I think because of his own realization of his lack of um, qualifications and his, his lack of training to, to not only preach, but to deal with pastoral issues, my impression was that anytime there was any issue within the church, he would just ring Friedel Stegen or, or the, the mission and say, what, what do I do kind of thing. Um, that Again, that's that's my impression of, of how things were run. But it's, I think, because um, I did an interview in which they kind of asked this question recently of, um, do you think the leaders are, are doing it deliberately to kind of, you know, um, for, for some kind of personal gain where they, they know what they're doing, but they're doing it for personal gain? Mm-hmm. Or, or is it just that they actually believe what they're, they're preaching and, and they're just that deluded that, um, 
you know, they're, they're sincere, but just very misguided. And I, the, the point I made was that I actually think either scenario is equally dangerous because if you have a leadership that is completely corrupted in which they're willing to victimize people, that's obviously a big problem because you've got these malevolent narcissists who are, you know, have a, a, a large number of people under their control. But I think what is equally dangerous is if there's not necessarily the, the malice on the part of the leadership, but there's the complete devotion to the doctrine because you, you can you know, the, the one person that you can't reason with is somebody who believes that they're acting in the name of God, because any any questioning of their belief, who are you to question God? God's shown me this. God said this. Um, why would we take you seriously? So in some ways, I think it's actually every bit as difficult to, to persuade somebody that genuinely believes that God is on their side when they're perpetrating some kind of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's probably more the, the case with, with the Australian branches that um, you know, I mean, having said that, they, they, the, the leadership could be, you know, incredibly arrogant and extremely sort of dictatorial in the way that they ran certain things. But for the most part, I think they were, they were people that were ignorant enough to really be seduced by KSB's uh, worldview. So did the pastor grow up in the mission? Uh, not really. So the, the interesting thing with the, the, kind of core family of the church here is that they in some ways were actually more extreme in in their legalism and in the rules that they required the children including the pastor to follow so uh, ironically enough and this this is probably hard for people to believe but they felt a sense of liberation when they came into contact with Kwasi Zabantu because they felt like there was almost an easing of of some of the rules that they'd grown up with Um, and so that probably tells you a little bit about the psychological disposition of, of the, the parents and the, the family as a whole. Um, but yeah, to, to them, it, it represented a, a kind of freedom, but also I know that prior, right, right before or, or prior to them coming into contact with Kwasi Zabantu, there was a relative who was an older man that they kind of revered in the same way that they did Arlo and Friedel later, where they sort of got everything secondhand. They would have, they would sort of designate their man of God who would hear from God and then they would just follow him blindly. And they did that with somebody. And then this man passed away. And interestingly, the reason he passed away was because he didn't believe in, in doctors or medicine. So he, um, I'm told he had a completely treatable uh, illness, which claimed his life because he believed medicine was evil. And once once he passed away, my, my opinion is that psychologically there would have been this void for them now because they, they're suddenly cast adrift in, in spiritually and, and theologically where they no longer have somebody blindly to follow. Then they're not really well informed enough to, to lead, make up their own minds about how they want to worship God or, or decide what the Bible is saying. So my impression is, is that they somehow came into contact with Pussy Zabando and then just latched themselves onto onto KSD and, and said, right, we'll just follow these guys. They seem to know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I spoke to a cult expert here in South Africa, obviously. And he, one of the things that he mentioned was that people have like a, a, a need at times to just, they've got a need and then this person comes along that can fulfill their need and, and make life's complex questions very simple. So, I don't have the answers. Here's this guy. He's giving me answers. Cool. I'm going to follow him. Do you think it was kind of a, a case like that? So they didn't, if they'd followed the grand or the, the elder that blind, I wouldn't, 
blindly sounds bad, but blindly. So they followed mm. this guy blindly. This guy is all of a sudden out of their lives. They never had the ability to kind of face things by themselves or have to answer their own questions. And then all of a sudden in Swoop's case, be and they're like, oh, cool. They're going to tell me how to live. I'm going to follow them now. Do you think it's something similar? Yeah, I think so, especially because this family had had very little education. So, I mean, they they wouldn't even have the the tools to to help them think critically about something. Um, and to some extent, they actually prided themselves on their ignorance. You know, there was sort of at least initially was seen as as something desirable. And um, yeah, I, I think I mean I don't know whether it's it's just laziness or just um, a, a leftover of of this this man's teaching initially where education because you know there, there were sayings that were thrown around like you know the devil lives at university and and things like that and there was this this you know really this this paranoia about mm-hmm. um, particularly higher education and so what you essentially end up with then though is this this church of people who none of them have really been been taught to think critically through the process of education. And so they, they would have been incredibly susceptible to, you know, a group like Kossi Zavantu in, in terms of just following them that blindly. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what happened, you know. Sure. What, so obviously there's, there's rumours about Erlo. Um, well, we know he's very ill but the rumors are basically about his dementia. And I mean, if you go to the KSB website and you look at the past sermons versus kind of current videos, you, you can see he's he's getting very much on in age. I think he's in his 80s now. And then yeah, he, if, he would be. Yeah. yeah. And now obviously Friedel is um, out since 2019. Um, when they eventually do pass, do you think there might be a change? in the church or do you think that the the people that are now or are left there now are so in, incredibly indoctrinated that they just going to kind of keep on teaching what they'd been taught you know th- this may sound uh, a little bit shocking i'm actually fearful that the opposite is going to happen i'm i'm fearful that when allo passes they're going to double down and tighten the rules even more Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is because I've definitely noticed a marked shift. So Allo has been out of the picture now for a couple of years in terms of like he makes the, a very rare brief public appearance, but he's, he's in severe dementia. I mean, there's there's a sermon online, KSB I think have taken it down, but I found it elsewhere online in which he basically preaches and repeats the same phrase just over and over and over again. I mean, he's, he's an old man with dementia. You know, there's a couple of problems with that. Firstly, the mission has denied that he has dementia. So they, they, I mean, it's the the independent panel report. They they state in there that they were told by the leaders that Allo does not have dementia. And then when they interviewed him, they they say in the report that they recognised immediately that a conversation with him was impossible because he yeah. does have dementia. I think, firstly, I think there's going to be a massive kind of hullabaloo around the death of Allo in terms of, you know, celebrating his life. Um, not, I mean, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with, with that itself, mm-hmm. but um, what's interesting to me too is that even just as recently as their, their last Sunday sermon, oftentimes when the preachers get up to preach now, they'll say something along the lines of, I'm not really worthy to be standing here. This is Reverend Stegan's pulpit. And so there's still this veneration of, of Allo, even though he's in this 
his old age and in the state that he's in. Mm. Um, so to, to answer the question, though, no, I don't think there's going to be any meaningful change to the belief system at all. So certainly not within the next, I, I would say, at least two generations or so. I, I think, yeah, that it'll be business as usual, or they will, in fact, even even make things more just more restrictive because they'll kind of fear that without you know the, the leadership of somebody like Allo and Friedel around that you know the, the, there's going to be a paranoia there. I think that you know the mission will, in their minds, lose revival. But what they mean by that is that it'll it'll you know lose some of its um, uh, exclusivity and and some of the rules that they have in place. And then, obviously, Erla only had daughters, and they've married men. And these men's men's sorry, <laughs> these men are pretty prominent within in the church now. I don't know very much about them at all, but I know that, like, maybe in past, if I've looked at past high control groups, as soon as the kind of the face or the leader passes, the the group almost breaks up because there's kind of infighting unless there's like a, a real groomed successor and everyone knows that Pauline is now gone, but Daniel is now the man and off we go. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that might be something that would happen? So there might be infighting between the guys like I'm the leader, not I'm the leader, not I'm Friedel's favorite, not I'm Friedel's or Erlo's favorite. Do you know what I'm saying? Or yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I think... Um, there, there used to be kind of a natural successor, as far as I'm aware, that was essentially being viewed as Allo's as successor, um, a, a man called Trevor Dahl, but he actually left the mission in the mid-90s. And so he was kind of, as far as I'm aware, he was kind of Allo's right-hand man for, for a long time. He was very high up, and he became disillusioned with the mission and left and vilified for it, of course, by Allo himself. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm just because I haven't been to the mission for, for quite some time, I'm not sure what the dynamics are now in terms of the, the leadership structure. Mm -hmm. I think that Lydia Dubé still holds an enormous amount of power at, at the mission. She's sometimes called um, to force. Um, and then you've got the, the co-workers that seem to be doing most of the preaching there. So Ayabi van Eden, uh, Michael and Gubani, and, and a number of others as well. I... It'll be interesting to see whether they actually formalize the leadership a little bit more in the sense of like appointing elders or something like that. Mm. Um, but I'm not aware that there would be like a, an outstanding kind of or an obvious candidate to sort of fill the shoes of Allo. I think they're going to have difficulty with that. Um, and there would possibly even be a hesitance on the part of the co-workers to even step into that role just because of how how deified Allo is, you know, um, mm. kind of like what I mentioned with, you know, they almost feel guilty for preaching in his place. It, I think that would also apply in terms of, well, I'm, I'm unworthy to, to lead this great work of God, you know, in their minds. Mm. Okay, well, that's interesting. Sure. Um, is there, what is your, your ultimate hope, wish, goal, plan for, for the, the people in the mission, for the children in the mission, to change at the mission? Like, like what, what do you, what is, what is your mission regarding the mission? Yeah, look, I, everybody who knows me knows that I'm a, a very cynical pessimist by nature. <laughs> So I, I, I'm honestly not convinced that the mission itself is ever going to change just because 
anytime there's been any attempt to you know get them to engage with some kind of accountability structure or to re-examine their beliefs um, they have always doubled down and said no we are in the right you guys are lying you're after our money you know they, they've invented a whole host of reasons as to what's wrong i mean if if they could respond to the the massive outcry in the media and the crl commission that has happened in 2020 and still double down and say no we are in the right i i mean what you know, if that wasn't going to do it, what really is? Um, I think the best we can hope for is, and, and I guess you're asking about my my intentions with it, um, in terms of writing and speaking about it, really part of it is just to, to kind of warn prospective members that may, you know, sort of look at KSB and think, oh, this looks pretty good and interesting. And, um, you know, just to make them aware that all is not as it seems. Mm. Um, I mean, thankfully, the the media exposure, I think, has done that to a large extent too but then there's also the hope that um and and it's hard because the 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 membership is very restricted in terms of you know being allowed to read and view things you know i've i've seen footage of them actively warning the membership you know don't read these news articles it'll just take you away from god so but if if some of the more rebellious members shall we say you know, do go onto a site like KSB Alert and if they encounter my writings or other people's writings, I guess my hope would be just to plant those first seeds of doubt that can create a cognitive cognitive dissonance mm. because that's usually the starting point for people leaving. It's not something that you just wake up one day and think, oh, this is all baloney, I better get out of here. There's, there's always just a seed of doubt that gets planted and and eventually that's that's enough to provoke a cognitive dissonance that that becomes more and more difficult to reconcile in your mind and eventually once once you get to the point where you realize maybe these people aren't infallible and maybe they're not god's special agents on earth mm. once you get to that point then i think the floodgates open and you realize all of these sort of allegations and problems that you've trying been trying to sweep under the rug or the leadership has been trying to sweep under the rug maybe there's actually something to them you know mm. so you know, whether it's it's uh, the essays or or just something people hear, if, if they were open enough to consider it, um, I would hope that it's enough to just plant the first seeds of doubt in people's minds. And and also just to say say to them, look, leaving Kwasizabantu doesn't spell the end of Christianity, even though that's what the mission has told you. There, there is a meaningful faith and religious experience that can be had outside of Kwasizabantu. So for example, one of the narratives that Kosizabantu always peddles is this idea that if you leave their group, um, the only alternative is what they would view as a very watered down kind of Christianity where no one's really all that serious about God. And I, I wish I could just, you know, there's so many churches and websites and resources now with, with the internet being what it is where, you know, you kind of want to just pick people up and shake them and say, look, this isn't true what they're telling mm. you there. There are perfectly sincere, um, you know, robust uh, evangelical preachers and churches. Yes, they don't follow the rules of Christ's Abandu, but that's because the rules are a problem, <laughs> yeah. um, the, the yeah. ones that they've erected there. Um, so there, there is a meaningful Christianity. You know, you don't have to feel like um, this is God's only special place on earth because that's not really how God operates. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for your time. 
Um, what I will ask you is in future, if we can catch up again and just have another chit chat and see where you're at and see where everything's at, if that's fine. Yeah, yeah. sure. No worries. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, thank you. That was that was really incredible. I could probably speak to you all day, but you have a life. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's, oh, it's been a pleasure you. talking to you. Okay, great. And then we will obviously chat soon, I guess. <laughs> Sure, that sounds good. Thanks. Um, what I will do is, um, for the listeners, I'm going to put links to your paper in the show notes so oh, that sure. they can yeah. go read for themselves. And then are you mm -hmm. happy for me to also add your Twitter handle so that they can follow you there? Oh, sure. Yeah. That's okay, great. Okay, so I'll do that. <laughs> so thank no you very much. <laughs> okay. okay. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. No worries. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Once again, I would like to thank Daniel for his time and for sharing his story with us. If you would like to follow Daniel on Twitter, his handle is at ComposerDan90, that's with a capital C and a capital D. I'll post it in the show notes. I hope that you all have a wonderful festive break. Decoding Cult is going to take a four-week break while I sort out some personal things and do some extra research for the upcoming year's episodes. I can't thank you guys enough for your support these past few months. If The Strange and Paranormal is up your alley, then I would like to introduce you to Shh, Look Behind You. But here's Shane to tell you more about it. Haunted Houses paranormal activity, unsolved crime cases. These are but just a few of the topics I cover on my show. I'm Shane Campbell, host and founder of the Creepy and Paranormal channel. If you are looking for stories of local and abroad, then give my show a listen. Episodes air on a weekly basis and can be found on YouTube as well as Spotify. And remember folks, don't forget to check under your bed tonight to find out what those scratchy noises are. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. Please also share it with your family and friends. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that we sent you. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.